name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. In a couple of weeks, we'll be in the season of Advent, which starts off a new church year. So if you're not familiar as much with the church calendar, the season of Pentecost that we're in now, the, the green season as the colors in the church, green representing the life and the growth in the Lord's church. So as the season of Pentecost kind of comes to a close, we start to consider the readings that have to do with the end of the time of the church. That is, the end times, the return of Christ and the final judgment. So the readings have that theme and the hymns that go along with the readings have that theme. And it's not a pretty picture. If you recall from the parables from last Sunday, the, the parable of the ten virgins, the talents, uh, this week and the next week with the sheep and the goats, they all end with someone being cast in the outer darkness or there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the hymns kind of carry that theme. So this is one of those this is one of those hymns that we just sang in the hymn of the day where it's long. There's actually like three more stanzas to this hymn. Uh, we're going to sing them later in communion. But so yeah, like if we're wanting to like save time, we want to cut the hymn somewhere, you can't just stop this hymn anywhere because like half the stanzas end with judgment and scary pictures. So you have to at least get the stanza five with the Savior paying the debt I owe. But all the hymn, just like these readings of the parables of Jesus in the end times, they are a frightful picture because it is a picture of standing in the final judgment with hearts open as the hymn says the books are open the hearts are exposed sin and shame and guilt all laid out before all and then we receive the judgment that we deserve and outside of Christ that is a very frightful picture but not for those who are in Christ, which is in fact our great comfort. Jesus only dies for those who can save themselves, those in need of mercy. And so that's the, the great comfort of the hymn, my savior paid the debt I owe and for my sin was smitten. He was killed for us. And so we can, we can wait now for that last day, the final judgment, not with fear and despair, but rather with hope and even joy. And as we wait, whether or not we are joyful, or whether we are fearful, has everything to do with how we see the Lord Jesus. And that's what the parable of the talents, today's gospel reading, is all about. So it's got the, just to kind of recap the, the parable, you've got the, the master who comes and he gives his gifts according to ability. He gives five talents to one guy, two talents to another, and to another one. It says each according to their ability. Now talents is a large weight of money, some speculate it's somewhere between one million if it's a talent of silver or even five to seven million if it's a dollars if it's a talent of gold so even the guy who got one talent it wasn't like he got a dollar he still got a lot of money so that's the idea it's big money that, that they've been given by their master and the first two guys right away they take the great money and they go and they they, they risk with it they whatever business ventures they get into and they double the they double the money and so after a long time, the text says, when the master comes back, they present the money back to him. And he, in fact, let, he lets them keep it at the end. But he, they're coming before the master. Look how these great ways that I've spent the talents that you've given me. And then you got the last guy, the guy who got one talent, who says he was, he was scared of the master, he was afraid of this hard master. And so he buried the money in the ground. And this did not make the master happy. And so he's cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when you read this parable, when you hear it, if there's one thing you walk away from, it's, you, you walk away from the parable thinking, okay, I don't want to be that last guy. 
I don't want to be the guy cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? So how can I, how can I be sure? What can I do to make sure that I'm not the guy that's thrown into hell, who's cast into the outer darkness? So we start looking at the servants, and we start trying to figure out what, what's, what's different about them. So we have to answer these questions like, what are the talents? What do they represent? It's not, they, maybe, maybe they represent the abilities that, that God has given us, but it says that the master gave the talents according to the abilities. So it's like it's something different. Is it money? Is it the amount of money God has given? Is it your time? What you do with your, with your time on earth? What is the talent? So even if we can kind of get our fingers around like what the talent is, then we have to answer the question, have I buried my talent in the ground? What would that look like? What would it mean for me to bury my talent in the ground? And what would it look like for me to double my master's money? So as we think about our personal experience and we start thinking about, okay, what is the talent that, that God has given me in my life and have I used it rightly? Have I doubled the investment or have I buried it in the ground? And this, this is the question that the law always brings to us. Have you done enough? Have you been good enough? The law is all about counting and measuring and weighing. And the, lay, the law is never satisfied. It will always condemn. It leaves us uncertain. So as we consider the parable, we look at the, we look at the servants and we think about the talents. We have to walk away terrified, uncertain, unsure. Am I the guy with the talent in the ground? Am I going to get cast into the outer darkness or what? There's nothing there but despair. But Jesus did not come into this world to bring more law and to set us to live in fear and despair. We had the law already. We were already under the judgment of the law before Jesus came. He came to die for sinners who couldn't save themselves. So these end time parables, in fact, all the parables of Jesus, but especially these parables at the end of the church year, we have to remember that Jesus gives these parables that are often scary in the way that they end to us. He gives these parables just before he's crucified. This is the end of Matthew. He's just about to institute the Lord's Supper and then be crucified. So everything that he's saying in the parable cannot undo the fact that he had to die for people who couldn't save themselves. He has to die for those who cannot do enough good works. He had to die for those who couldn't save themselves. The parable cannot be saying, do good with your talents and you're in, but do the wrong thing with your talents and you'll be condemned because that would make salvation dependent on us and do away with the whole, the whole crucifixion of Jesus. So we can't forget about the necessity of Jesus on the cross in all of these parables. Fact is, Jesus came to give gifts to his people, to set us free by his cross, not to give us more law, but to give us the freedom and joy of the gospel. So as we look at this parable, the parable of the talents, with our eyes on the servants, there's nothing there for us but uncertainty and despair. So instead, it is good for us to fix our eyes on the master, because in the master there is certainty. He's the one who gives gifts, and he wants to be known for giving away his gifts freely and lavishly. 
So he did for the first two guys. He gives them the first guy five talent. He says he takes the talent right away. So it's like he's got all this money. He's so excited. He goes and he's, he's risks, he risks it. So he takes this great risk, but he, it's like he doesn't even care. He was quick to spend it. He was joyfully running around. Five million dollars? Here we go. Think of the cool stuff I can do. Same with the guy with two talents. The problem with the servant who gets condemned is not that he has a bad return of investment. It's like the other guy's returned uh, double the money, but this guy just didn't invest wisely. That's not what he's in trouble for. He's in trouble because he saw the master as, as he says, a hard man, a cruel and harsh master, and he was afraid, and it paralyzed him. As the text says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. And that's why the master responds, you wicked and slothful servant. He doesn't say, he doesn't say you didn't make enough money. He says, you thought I was a hard man? You were afraid? Why would you be afraid of me? I just given you all my money. What do you mean I take what's not mine? I've only given you stuff. So the frustration with the master is that he's the one servant, servant with one talent, fails to see him as a generous and giving master. And so he's cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, the problem is not about the talents. What the servants do with the talents has everything to do with how they see the master. He's either generous and giving, or he's a hard and cruel man taking what's not his. And that impacts the way that they live their life. A picture I use to, to maybe uh, the analogy to think about this is you gotta imagine a scenario with some parents, uh, a little girl, like five years old, and leaves outside, raking leaves. It's a good time of year to think about raking leaves. So dad comes home from work one day and he's got this sad look on his face. He's maybe gotten some bad news. He walks over to his wife and tells her whatever the thing is, and she becomes sad. Who knows what it was, but the daughter picks up. Kids are very perceptive. Kids are seeing, looking at dad. The girl's sitting there seeing dad is all upset about something, and she thinks, I don't know what's going on here, but I, I want to make dad happy. So she thinks about what she could do, and she looks outside, and she sees all the leaves, and she knows, oh, dad's talking about how he needs to rake the leaves. I'm going to go help, and I'm going to go rake the leaves. Now, if you've ever seen a five-year-old rake leaves, it's not very productive. If you, you've seen it even worse, if you try to see him get the rake out of the garage and, and walk past the car, like, eh. but the kid, so the kid knows dad loves me, he's patient, he's fun, he's going to make up for all of the mistakes that I do, and he's just going to be so happy that I rake, tried to rake these leaves. And so she goes out, grabs the rake, makes everything somehow worse puts the leaves in all the wrong places, and yet this still brings joy to this loving and patient and forgiving father. Who then can go out, scoop her up with a smile and finish the job rightly, right? Now in contrast to that, picture the father, same scenario, parents, daughter, leaves. The dad comes home, but this dad is not kind and loving and merciful, but he is known to be a harsh and cruel father unforgiving, always complaining and even yelling and maybe even abusing his children. So he comes home and he's sad for getting whatever bad news it was and he tells his wife and she's sad and that daughter then looks outside and sees the leaves and thinks, 
maybe I could go rake the leaves and maybe that would make, God, make, make dad happy, but he's probably gonna yell at me for not doing it right. He's gonna yell at me for not putting the leaves in just the right way. He's gonna yell at me for, for knocking the rake down and touching the car with the rake or whatever the thing is. So, so she's like, well, maybe I won't rake the leaves because he's just gonna get mad at me more. And if I stay here in this chair, he's still gonna yell at me for being lazy. No matter what I do, I'm gonna get yelled at. But if I stay here, maybe he won't notice me and maybe I can get by. So I'm gonna risk it and stay here and not get yelled at. So you see this contrast between life under a loving and kind and patient father or an unmerciful, cruel and hating father. It sets the person either free to love or paralyzes them with fear. Our Lord is a generous and loving Lord who gives gifts to his people. That's how he wants to be known, patient and merciful. And that is the whole point of this parable. That's where we find our comfort. When you see God as that kind of a master, as that kind of a parent who is freely, freely giving gifts and patient and merciful, then that sets you free. It doesn't paralyze you with fear, but rather you're set free to use all that you have in this life to serve others with freedom and joy. Not afraid of losing it, not afraid of making God angry, but instead you can spend whatever you have just as lavishly as he's given it to you. Jesus wants to be known as a generous Lord of gifts. But if you refuse him as a God of gifts and instead demand a God of laws and judgment, then that's the kind of God that you'll, that you'll get. And it's not good. He wants to be known by his cross for the blood shed for all, for his forgiveness and mercy, for the gifts that he's freely given to us, he has baptized us, and we belong to him. He is our loving and generous Father, and now he sets us free to live this life in joy and freedom. And in this life, he has given us talents. Again, in the parable, it stands for some big amount of money, but it's simply a picture of all the ways that he has given gifts to us. We recognize that he's given each of us different gifts. As Paul talks about the church as the body of Christ, we're all different. We all have been given unique and varied gifts. And as the text says, he gives them out. They're his, it's his property, by the way. And he gives it out seemingly with, in a way that doesn't make any sense. It says to each according to his ability. Some he gives five, some one. It doesn't, he knows what he's doing. So he gives out the gifts in his way and the way that pleases him, whether it's, whether it's our vocations, where God has placed us in this world and where he works through us. Maybe it's our time, our money, our personality, the abilities God has given us, our stuff, everything, whatever it is, we're able to rejoice that we've received it from the Lord's merciful and generous hand. And almost even more, we're able to acknowledge the generosity that he's given to everybody else. So rather than coveting what everybody else has, we can joyfully say, hey, it's, it's what a great thing that God has given my neighbor this or that. And we can rejoice together in the gifts of one another. What do you do with talents? That is, when you've been given $5 million, when someone gives you a dollar, or maybe one dollar doesn't buy anything, if someone gives you $5, you go to Starbucks and you buy a coffee. That's what you do with a $5 gift. When someone gives you $5 million, you do something that you do with $5 million. You invest it. You buy land. You buy a business. You invest it somewhere. You do a $5 million thing. 
So what do you do with talents? When God gives us talents, what do we do? We do the same thing that the Lord does. You dispense it to others. You generously give it away. You pass it along. You don't bury it in the ground or hoard it for yourself in fear that it will run out or be wasted. That is how the Lord, in fact, serves our neighbors in this world through us. Between now and the last day, we wait. But we wait in freedom and joy because as we wait, we know that our Lord is merciful and a gift-giving Lord who waits even with us. We are his people, cleansed and free. He's given us each unique talents that are freely given to us for us to freely and joyfully bestow to one another. We forgive others as freely as we've been forgiven. We encourage one another. We comfort and build one another up in the gospel. And we know that on the last day, we know that we won't stand for the judgment alone, but we'll stand in Christ. As we sang, my Savior paid the debt I owe. He covers our shame, he forgives our sins, and he still continues to shower us with his gifts. You are free because he loves you. In the name of Jesus, amen. We stand for prayer.